To Sean's point uh, that he mentioned before earlier in the service, uh, have you ever wondered why we call Good Friday uh, good? I honestly get that question every single year, whether it's from uh, my own children or from students that I teach. Um, Why do we call Good Friday good? Maybe you've wondered that question yourself. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you have some idea as to why Christians refer uh, to this as a good thing. Uh, Maybe you didn't grow up in a church. You've always wondered why your whole life, how can we say that we celebrate and remember such a gruesome execution? How could we call that uh, a good day? William H. Alden, who was a famous poet and writer, said that Christmas and Easter can be subjects for poetry, but Good Friday, just like Auschwitz, cannot. The reality is so horrible, it's not surprising that people should have found it a stumbling block to faith. And so the question is, what makes this date so good? What makes it so essential for the Christian faith? Why do we have to walk through such horror before we can experience such joy? As we think of that question, I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 27. And I'm going to be reading verses 32 to 44. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he could not drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is God's word. Our sermon series uh, for the Lenten season, which now comes really to a close on the evening of Good Friday, our Our sermon series has been to look at the the Jesus opposition, at least that's what we've called it for the past several weeks, and we've looked at passages where we've seen time and time again that Jesus faced all sorts of uh, hostility and all sorts of rejection. If you remember back, we started with a visit to his home synagogue, and he returned back to his home synagogue, was given the privilege of reading from the scriptures, He taught a little bit from those scriptures, spoke about why he had come and who he was. And by the end, all those people that had known him from the time when he was a little child, those people who knew him best, his 
his family, his friends, his, his co-workers, you name it, all of them with one voice tried to throw him off of a cliff because of what had happened. We've seen throughout that it was the religious, the people that were proud of their own spirituality, the people that were proud of their own spiritual resume. They were the ones that were most likely to oppose him every step of the way. You see, Jesus threatened their status. He threatened what they believe was their place in the kingdom of God. And one of the unexpected things that we've seen for this king, this true king, was that it was the marginalized. It was the outcast. It was the the helpless and the hopeless that embraced him for who he was and found faith. In the end, we read tonight that his opponents, uh, the opposition, got what they wished for. Jesus was arrested in the garden. He was tried unfairly in the middle of the night. And the kangaroo court at the very end called in one voice to crucify him. And so he would be crucified. But before that, he would be beaten. He would be spit upon. He would be whipped. And he would be mocked all throughout this Lenten season, we've been asking a really important question, maybe the most important question. We've tried to set aside all the the patronizing nonsense that tends to, to surround Jesus and have asked the most important of questions. We've asked, what would we have done had we been there? Would we have celebrated him or would we have called for his crucifixion? Would we have rejected him Or would we have embraced him? See, I think that's one of the fundamental questions that all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the fundamental question that each of those gospel writers presents to us. If you've read any of their gospels and you've missed that that was their question, that that was their agenda all throughout, if you've somehow dodged it through all the chapters of the gospels that we've read, You now come to the cross and that question gets forced upon us. It's inescapable. We can't look at the cross without asking that question. How would you have responded? How do you now respond to Jesus and the cross? Matthew tells us that Jesus is forced out of the city to a hill that is called Golgotha. And there he's crucified. If you know anything about crucifixion, it was a a Roman form of execution designed for the worst of criminals, those who were most dangerous. And it was designed to be a spectacle for all to see so that it would discourage others from rebelling against the Roman Empire. In fact, history tells us that in one instance, the Romans crucified 6,000 insurrectionists along the Apian Way. And so for miles upon miles, crucified bodies stretched along the road. And anybody who was walking on that road would receive the message loud and clear, we don't mess with the Romans. Well, our passage tells us that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. Some translations call them robbers. And so we often think it couldn't be all that serious, but they were likely very serious criminals if they had warranted crucifixion. They stole probably a lot more than just a loaf of bread. These men were very serious criminals. Matthew paints the scene for us. 
It's the height of opposition. They've stripped Jesus. They've cast lots for his clothing, verse 35. A sign was put above him to sort of mock his claim to be the king of the Jews. We read about that in verse 37. Tells us in verse 40 that all the people that passed by him along the road mocked him and called out to him. Even the religious are there. Now that's surprising considering they're always very concerned about their own cleanliness and being around blood and dead bodies would threaten that and yet it doesn't seem to mind them at this moment. They are there. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders are all mocking him. Verse 41. And Luke even tells us about the criminals' responses, those that were hung on either side of him. One of those criminals joined in on the mocking, hurling insults at Jesus. Every year when I read Luke's message, I always think how bizarre this seems. I've always scratched my head at this criminal. These are likely the last words this man will ever speak. He's facing his own death and with his dying breath, with his last words, he mocks Jesus out of resentment and anger. Why end your life with such hatred? And so it feels as if the the fever pitched has reached its apex. This is the the height of opposition towards Jesus. The disciples have scattered. The majority of the crowd that's there hates him. They are reviling him. They're cheering on his destruction. This is what the opposition most wanted. And we even know from the gospel writers that God the Father had forsaken him in this moment. Over the years, I've tried to place myself in this story. I'd like to think that I wouldn't be one of those who joined in on mocking Jesus. I'd like to think that I wouldn't have been one of those who rejected him and ignored his claims or even been apathetic. But the truth is, I probably would have rejected him just along with everyone else, maybe even conspiring against him. You see, the rejecting God has been the drumbeat of all of humanity since our rebellion in the garden. It's the the natural inclination of our hearts to walk away from Jesus or to be apathetic or to resist the truth of God. I would have been no different. And yet here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus died for those, even those who are prone to reject him and to resist him. Luke tells us about another criminal, the one that hung on the other side, and he says this, that criminal says to Jesus, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, that criminal, I can't imagine that he knew very much. He probably had never seen Jesus before. And yet he somehow recognized two things in that moment. He recognized that he was being justly punished for what he had done. He recognized his guilt and his sin and that he was deserving of what was happening to him. But he also recognized somehow that Jesus could save him. And so he looks to Jesus in a three-word prayer and says, Jesus, remember me. 
So even in those most horrid setting imaginable, this man receives grace and the promise of eternal life. That day, likely just few hours later, he would experience eternal life in paradise. Alistair Begg, who's a, a famous pastor, uh, does this great rendition of, of the, he imagines the criminal coming to the gates of heaven for the very first time. And you know how there's angels there at the gates of heaven. And one of the angels at those gates asks him, hey, how did, how did you get here? And his answer was, well, I asked the guy next to me if I could come in. And the angel might scratch his head wondering, this seems a little strange. Uh, and he just responds, well, that man who was in the middle, he said I could come. He said I could come. He was a terrible criminal. He knew little to nothing about Jesus. He knew little to nothing about justification by faith and the doctrines of the faith and all the things that we love. And yet he experiences paradise for all of eternity. Not because he earned it, but because of who Jesus was. Because of that guy who was standing, being crucified right next to him. That's why the good news and the reason Good Friday is good is because of Jesus. And it's all about Jesus from start to finish. It's why even though his death was so gruesome, it is also so good. It's good news for us. We opposed him. We rejected him. And yet he still died for us so that you and I could experience paradise with him forever. Jesus endured the storm of God's wrath so that he could calm our hearts and carry us into paradise. And so my challenge for myself, for all of us, is this. May we all be like that criminal. You haven't heard that before in church before, right? Be like the criminal. May we all be like that criminal who, when surrounded by death, looked full into the eyes of Jesus, saw hope, and found eternal life. Let's pray.